This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, should we be paying more attention to the oceans or the moon? Professor Aaron Boley explains how the moon wobble that's coming up in 10 years is going to impact tides. So you know what the real information is and the misinformation online. Blaine Kylo takes a look at virtual reality exhibits in Vancouver. They're like art exhibits, but they're like goggles on VR stuff. Really cool. And a look at Skyward Sword on the Nintendo Switch as we geek out with some gaming. Are you okay with letting Jeebus take the wheel? And are you okay with bowling balls? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. Are you okay? Now, with Are You Okay, you can contribute 877-399-9898. We want to know if you too are or are not okay with some of our stories here. Are you okay with autonomous cars? It seems like something that sounds cool, but I feel like everybody would rather just drive their, on their own. Do you really think that planet Earth will, in our lifetime, ever have the infrastructure for everybody to just have robots be driving their cars? It just kind of seems like a cool thing on the Jetsons rather than actually useful. Lane assist, though, is cool cars give it that really i found uh i rented a car when i was in abbotsford last weekend and it had the lane change alerts on it so as soon as you turned on the signal light and if there was someone in the lane and you started to change lanes or as soon as you turn it on and there's someone there it that yelled at you it was a jeep grand cherokee and i was like i couldn't do this this is crazy because if someone's passing you i turn on the signal light as they're passing to make sure that no one else pulls out from behind you or whatever, right? You know, try to get the light on. So you let people know. And I don't turn the light on before they pass, so it freaks them out. But as soon as they get up, side saddle to you, turn the signal light on, get ready to go. Well, the damn car is yelling at me. I'm thinking if we can't even figure out signal lights, are we really that ready for autonomous driving? Mm-hmm. You know, in one of my many jobs, I worked at a Volvo dealership, and this wasn't too long ago. Well, was really? Yeah, I did. Uh, this was maybe about five or six years ago, and I had to say all of the sensors and alarms um, on the cars were far more anxiety-inducing than mm-hmm. they really need to be. First of all, I had to wonder, too. I was like, how do people even get in accidents and fender benders anymore with these things screaming at you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, this, the well, car would go nuts if there was a shadow. It would My, sense the shadow. <laughs> well, exactly. And to the point of the SkyTrain in Vancouver, as soon as it snows, I mean, that autonomy is not oh, working. No, that's awful. That's awful. And my dad, although he had a Chevy pickup and it had a little uh, vibrator in the seat that was on the left side and the right leg. So like when you would wander over the dotted line or whatever, then it would bzz, bzz, in the seat. And I figured that's probably pretty cool to wake you up if you're driving at nighttime, texting, you know, distracted. That to me seemed like a a good solution. But just beep, 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 beep. Like all I did was turn on the single light here. Jeep, chill out. You know, um, it also had the auto start when you got to the, the light and you would that's auto start. Feature. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I get that it saves fuel and then it starts again. That, that part, I get it in a small car with a small engine where it's smooth. But this thing, like you pull up to a light and it would turn off and the air conditioning's running. And like 30 seconds later, it says not enough power turns back on again, but it shakes the whole car when it starts. I'm like, how is this thing helpful? 
I I just don't think we're there for technology uh, in general. And so autonomous cars, I just don't think it's a thing. I I mean, it's neat when you see someone do it, but I don't know. We can't even paint lines on the road in my city where you actually see the lines for most of the year. So how are we going to have all of the infrastructure that Ryan's talking about? Well, we hear stories about people in Tesla's putting the car in autopilot and doing dumb stuff like napping. Uh, here are some examples of this, for example, from Inside Edition. Would you trust a self-driving car to ever do this? Passing an 18-wheeler in icy conditions while you're playing patty cake. <laughs> or how about these guys? As their Tesla cruises along, they're playing games like Jenga. Too exhausted to drive? How about a little shut-eye? And check out this road trip. Playing cards, arm wrestling, reading books. We found several videos on social media showing motorists putting enormous faith in the Tesla's self-driving technology. The videos come in the wake of the first death of a Tesla driver while on autopilot. That's very foolish. Bob Sorokonich is news editor for Road & Track magazine. You do need to have your hands at the ready and your feet at the ready because you don't know when the technology is going to say, I can't figure out what's going on. You need to drive now. Very yeah. valid point. Exactly. I think we offended all the delivery drivers and truck drivers. <laughs> they definitely don't want autonomy. Um, it's <laughs> no. not like checking out at the grocery store, right? It says, by the way, here's your new delivery vehicle. There's nobody in it. Well, how about this autonomy? Instead of letting Tesla do the work for you, you try this. Jesus, take the lead. Carrie? Oh, Amen. A woman was involved in a high-speed collision in Ohio after she tried to let God take the wheel, in quotes. On June 15th, officers responded to an intersection in Beechwood where a car had knocked down several power lines, a utility pole, and crashed into a house shortly before midnight. Nobody was hurt. According to a police report attained by, attained by WJW, a 31-year-old woman approached the officers and told them she was driving the car and that her 11-year-old daughter was in the front passenger seat. The woman told the police that she intentionally drove at high speed and threw the red light to test her faith with God, oh. according to the report. Uh, she told police she's been going through some trials and tribulations and recently fired from her job. The woman said that she let go and let God take the wheel. It was on the police report. She added that she believed she did the right thing. Now, the woman faces multiple charges, including felony assault, endangering a child, and driving under suspension. Under suspension? <laughs> well, she didn't die, in all fairness, to her faith. No, nobody died. Nobody was hurt. Uh, nobody was hurt. I think that's a sign. I think Jesus was telling you, hey, get your life together. This ain't on mm -hmm. me, Frando. You got to drive. Yeah. You're in the driver's seat, not me. Yeah. Put my hand on my yeah, shoulder. And, and not to mention, um, when she crashed and opened the door, a, a dictionary fell out open to the, the page of metaphor. So maybe Jesus just wanted to learn what a metaphor was with let God take the wheel. And... Uh, you watch, there'll be a lawsuit against Carrie Underwood for singing the song. Because it's America. <laughs> Although, to give her credit, 
That is a whole new level of faith. Whole new level. So I admire that. Respect. Okay, uh, let's start this next story completely out of context with this clip. Do-it-yourself demo work. It's a thing. Destroying something old to build something new. A Muskegon man had to dig really deep to do it. Man, does he have some balls. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, just read it. So are you okay with bowling balls? There it is. Oh. Uh, ten pin bowling balls. Mm. Not the five. The little fives I, I could never control. I was terrible at five pin bowling. But ten mm -hmm. pin bowling I was weirdly good at. Hmm. Did you ever work in a bowling alley? No, not that I can recall. Uh, I did not work in a bowling not alley. Not that I can recall. You're the only guy that doesn't remember if he did that job or not. There's been so many. <sighs> I like that. Um, I always love the sound of 10-pin bowling when they throw right? the ball and the pop sound of their thumb. How do they do that? <laughs> yeah, it's like a suction cup. Yeah, and uh, I, don't, I, I can't yeah. do that. I try to do it. No, I think you have to have, well, though professional bowlers, like the bowl, the balls are perfectly fitted to their fingers, right? So oh, you don't, there's a difference. They don't between, have chips in them, like the ones we use? That yeah, go no thump, chips. Thump, 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 I saw a video on TikTok of a guy in the inner workings of a bowling alley. And he was, like the balls were coming through and he was pushing them back. And I wonder, like... When I bowl and the ball goes through, is there someone behind there literally throwing the balls back no. at me? Or is there machines? Because in this bowling alley, there was a whole contraption, but it all relied on this guy just pushing no. the balls back. You know how no? I know that? Not from an expert analysis, just because the amount of times I've had to go to the front counter because the thing gets stuck and someone has to go walking down to the back and reset mm. it. If there was a guy right. back there already, they'd just be like, hey, Bob, push the reset, eh? His, but uh, instead, they have to go back there. His job was phased out by automation. Probably was back in the day. Probably oh, someone back there. Oh, I would imagine. Yeah, somebody setting up the the pins. I uh, although um, liquor service at a bowling alley. That's the genius part right there. Although another thing about bowling alleys, since we're talking about bowling alleys, you ever notice that the walls used to be stucco, but they've been painted so many times that it's not quite stucco anymore. It's just kind of wavy. That's another thing that happens yes. at bowling alleys. Weird, eh? Appreciate that. And the pub that's inside on the back side of the bowling alley is always so incredibly old. It, no one's ever back there. Have you ever just gone to sat at a sat to sit at a bowling alley at, at the bar in the back where there's all the old stuff? And it's usually a jukebox that the last time it was updated was in 1994. And it's um and just order a drink and sit in the bowling. Alley. They're so happy to see you. It's the best service ever. <laughs> I, I can't say I've never been to one of these old-timey bowling alleys. The only bowling alleys I go to in Calgary are like the bars that decide, we have extra square footage. Let's oh, make a yeah, bowling no. alley. That's dumb. You need to come. You come with me. We'll go to Shamrock Lanes, buddy. It's Ooh. a thing of beauty. Ooh, I like it. Get I like the name. Me. Yeah. Got to get lucky at Shamrock Lanes. Anyway, uh, back to the Are You Okay story. A man in Michigan decided to use some free time to get some home renos done. Sometimes people find hidden rooms, old coins, lost gifts that were hidden for Mother's Day up in the attic when it's Christmas time and you're living in a movie, or lost treasures when they work on their old homes. But this guy found an absurd amount of balls, bowling, balls. Here's more from 13 on your side, news. 
just never know. <laughs> what did David Olson know? Could just tell that we were in for something at this point. These stairs started busting it up. Had to go. After I got into it a little bit. He started to wonder. The deeper I got, the more I pulled out. One after another. Digging one out and rolling it back behind me. Learning. Holy crap, that's like 20 balls in just this one little area. He owned the ballsiest backyard. It became mind-blowing. On the block. Yeah, it kind of felt like a paleontologist or something where you see it where they got their little brush and they're dusting the bones off. A stash of bowling balls. They're packed in there pretty tight, so I had to kind of remove a lot of sand to get them to wiggle loose. Mostly black. These are before 1960. And a few other colors. I'm not gonna go into what that means. Get your mind out of the gutter, David. All right. Look at you, not shy to take a selfie with the boys. I wasn't even trying to go for this being sexy, I should say. What are you gonna do with them? Some sort of church group reached out to me and I'm actually gonna give them 10 of the balls. That's not a lot. And they invited us to a pig roast, but um, I have prior engagements that day. Wow. <laughs> okay, first of all, dear God, stories. fire me. <laughs> Just fire me if I ever did a, a, a story like that. Yeah, wasn't that the most bizarre <laughs> yeah. way to deliver the news ever? Just, I'm going to make the news story my conversation with this guy. All about uh, me. I, hey, it was creative, but... It was a lot no. of bowling ball. They could change the name of the, the the news channel from 13 on your side to news to 13 as I make this story about me news. <laughs> okay, Mr. Olson, the ball discovery guy, says the he's certain that there could be hundreds of more buried bowling balls behind his house, but he doesn't plan to tear up all the concrete. He adds that he will use some of the balls as decorative elements when he gets around to finishing his backyard landscaping. That'd be kind of cool, right, to be able to use the balls as, I don't know, like as legs or part of the chairs. or I mean, that's fun. Well, what about like uh, I see, you know, some people, they'll take old CDs or LPs and they'll stick them to the roof. What if like you made a floor? That was clear and underneath was just hundreds of bowling balls. Oh, like an epoxy sort of clear yeah, kind of trendy floor. That's kind of neat, hey? Think of all of the puns you could make in such a short amount of time. About balls? Yes, about balls. You're standing on my balls. <laughs> nice. <Wow>. Very good. <laughs> all right. Are you okay? There it is. <laughs> we found not only are you okay, bed, but we also might have found Bigfoot. Are you okay with Bigfoot? Oh, I don't like Bigfoot stories. I'll just say no. it. I don't. I don't like Bigfoot stories. It's an old narrative. I don't like yeah. Bigfoot stories. Um, you know, I love Dave Scott. I love his passion for Bigfoot. I love his experiences of uh, being around and seeing and meeting Bigfoots. Foots, big feet, big foots. And so, I mean, I believe him when he says that he thinks he saw one and he's his experiences. I believe those stories. But I think it's an old narrative. Like this, this available. I believe in the, the mystical part of it, you know, that, you know, that there's this mystical creature of it, but I don't believe it's a thing that's out there. As I haven't seen it. So the news is old. Um, the hunt for Bigfoot, uh, does continue. The hunt continues for the big and the foot. I should read Ryan's writing because it's pretty good. A man in Michigan claims he has done the impossible. He claims uh, to have, he claims to definitive the proof. He claims to, he claims to. Oh, words are in the wrong order in that sentence. Oh, boy. Bum, 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 bum. All right, all right, all right. Hang on. 
That's a typo. There it is. He claims to have definitive proof of Bigfoot, according to the Rocky Mountain Sasquatch organization, who uploaded the video to YouTube. The footage was sent by a man identified as Eddie V. Halen, who told the organization that his cousin shot the four-point-second video from far away, where you can't quite see what it is, the definitive proof. Eddie V from Michigan, he sent us this photo and then he was having difficulty sending the video. They finally sent us a video, it's 4.7 seconds long. He says, my cousin was kayaking on the Coss River here in Michigan when he took this picture. Not sure what it is, but I've sent it to a few people and some say it's Bigfoot carrying an infant, others say it's Bigfoot carrying a deer. The next one is the only photo that they took of the creature, so it's the best resolution and I zoom in on that. I think this is the best look at it, the original. I don't know what it is i'm a little bit skeptical whatever you be the judge keep on watching we're gonna keep on squatching <laughs> oh that's good i, I want to use that as a sentence in my everyday language just have a good day keep on squatching i i, I think like that's that. excellent so when the people who believe in bigfoot don't believe in the video what does that say a 2020 report on bigfoot sightings by state had michigan at 20 by <laughs> wow what a, wait wait, wait, wait. that might not be a typo it. that might actually typo. just be uh me copying the sentence and burly putting it in the wrong order Mm-mm. no i don't think so no a 2020 no, report a report on bigfoot sightings by the states it's missing a the had michigan at 220 sightings which puts yeah so it's a typo is what it is. It's a ty- you which, can't blame yeah. the com- computer just yeah. does what you tell it yeah computer says no that's a typo. You know, the computer wakes up and going, I can't wait till Ryan starts to tickle my keys today. I'm going to make him do typos. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, uh, the rest of it. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> Are you okay with Sprite and lemonade? Funny story. I've started making my own lemonade. And I started uh, mixing it with ginger ale. So kind of a sour lemonade and a little ginger ale. I have not tried it with Sprite, but I'm uh, now I'm curious. When I was a um, big cola fiend back in the day, Sprite was always one of my favorites. I always preferred the Sprites and the 7-Ups, the clear ones, yeah. because I, in my mind I thought they were better for me, but they're really not. Did you ever no, work for Coca-Cola? they do do that. Did I ever work for Coca-Cola? Yeah. No, not oh. directly for Coca-Cola. I sold Coke and Coke-related products for other companies, <laughs> though. <laughs> of course you did. So Sprite and lemonade together as one, half and half, if you will. Okay. I just call them Giannis for a reason. Antetokounmpo? Antetokounmpo? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. That's close. Okay. That's pretty Give good. Me. Well, you have to say it. Oh, Correct I can't me. say Help it. I know how to. Oh. I know how it sounds. I can't say it. No, I'm just That's like saying I don't. I know what I don't want. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just... So he put up one of the best performances ever for the NBA Finals. He basically won it with his hard work and dedication. He scored 50 points in Game Six. Milwaukee Bucks secured their first title in 50 years. So what do you do? He goes to Chick Fil A the next morning and ordered 50 chicken minis while on Instagram Live with 150,000 people watching on his phone. And then he ordered some Sprite and lemonade. Can I have a 50 piece? Sorry, I will put you. Uh, can I put your camera? Do you mind or no? Sure. I just uh, there's 150,000 people watching you right now. Really? Yes. So can I can I have please 
a 50 piece Mac Minis, 50 exactly, okay. not 51, not 49, chicken Minis, yes, 50. And um, let me have a large drink, no ice, half Sprite, half lemonade. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I want to acknowledge the fact that he asked permission first of the, the server before putting her on the camera, which was, mm-hmm. I mean, talk about gentlemen, perfect. Oh, he's uh, a respectful. super nice guy. This is also something he does all the time, by the way. He just randomly Instagram lives after winning a game or having a bad day. Just like, I'm going to get groceries. I'm taking 150,000 people with me. That's great. Again, because you're one of the biggest right. stars in sports. Not 51 points, not 49 points, 50 points, 50 chicken things from Chick-fil-A and pretty awesome with Giannis and what it is. This is the Shift Podcast. Uh, Does your moon wobble to and fro? Seems like it's actually a thing. Yep, your moon wobbles, my moon wobbles, everybody's moon wobbles. Well, we thought we would get Mr. Wobble here on the the phone to help us understand what's going on. Okay, this is Aaron. I want to introduce you to Aaron. Aaron is like space guy. And Aaron... Uh, is a professor. He's an associate professor at UBC, Canada Research Chair, Planetary Astronomy. Probably a lot of fun at a party. And I mean that in a good way, as in the kind of guy you probably sit down and chat with. And once he gets on a roll, that you're just like, this stuff is so cool. Because we all looked up at space and looked up to it. Um, Aaron, how are you? Well, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. And uh, thanks to everybody who's listening. We uh, got inspired to reach out because of the moon wobble. Right. Uh, turns out there's an awful lot of things going on in space at any given time. So help us understand, you know, what is going on with the moon and and our wobbly bits that we seem to be swinging around orbit. <laughs> well, you know, this the moon wobble is actually nothing new, the, the wobble itself. And so all we're talking about is how the moon's orbit it changes over time in a very natural way. Uh, and it's something that's been known from the 1700s uh, in a very quantified way. And you know, it's, it was known earlier than that, uh, just through its direct effect on um, just our timing of different things. So just, you know, people had to worry about tides for a very long time. And so they had to have some type of record of what was happening and people noticed these patterns and that's related to uh, changes in uh, the moon's orbit. And so there mm-hmm. are a couple different ways that the moon's orbit can change. Um, so. I didn't know that. And it's cool that you say that this is not new, right? I mean, so I, I've seen some articles about this that seem to be rather apocalyptic online, wanted to dispel that part that, hey, the moon wobbling is not the end of the world. In fact, it's been happening for quite a while. So what goes on with this? Yeah, I'll, I'll get uh, I'll get right to the moon in a moment. I do want to comment on, you know, what's happening in the news. And it's it's a little bit of uh, the, the story is kind of focused in the wrong place. And that is it's it's really a story about sea level rise and mm-hmm. the connections between sea level rise and the natural variations that occur to tides as a result of the moon. It's you put them together and suddenly you can have changes that basically people are not expecting. And that leads to a whole bunch of other problems that we as a society have to address. 
particularly, you know, those who are on coastal communities. But before we get to that part, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the moon. So mm -hmm. a couple things that are really important for this. One, the moon has an elliptical orbit. So it's not going about the Earth in a nice circle. So it's, it's, an, it's an ellipse. And so there are times when it's a little bit closer to Earth and times when it's a little bit farther away from Earth. And the orientation of that ellipse uh, changes over time. And so it can change uh, both in the direction that kind of the ellipse is, is pointing. If you could think about the longest axis along an ellipse, that will go ahead and move around. And then you could also think about the, the way the moon is, uh, what we say, inclined. So just tilt it with respect to Earth's orbit. So as the, so the Earth goes about the sun, that defines an orbital plane. Think of that just as a plate. And then the moon's orbit is about five degrees tilted relative to that plane. And the plate just moves around. Like if you were to take a dish and you were to kind of spin it, and then as it falls down, it's wobbling. That wobbling yeah. bit is something that we call precession. And so that orbit is just it, it basically staying the same in terms of its its overall characteristics of the ellipse, but its direction is changing. So, you know, this is the difference between your career and my career. Are you ready? <laughs> so you sound like you know what you're talking about because this is what you do. All I can think of is try to hula hoop with a warped hula hoop. <laughs> That's kind of what I feel <laughs> like it's, not, it's like, not right? wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are many different ways of thinking about this. Um, yeah, so you have this warped hula hoop. Um, and, and you're trying to go, you're trying to dance with the kind of wobbling hoop. up and down as you're doing that. Yeah, because I'm not good at it. So, That's why. Yeah. But all of this comes into then changing how the moon is oriented relative to Earth. You're going to take that to a class one day, by the way. You're going to be oh. like, someone's not going to get it. And you're going to say, oh, heck, oh try it. Warped hula hoop. <laughs> so I, So I do some crazy things in class. Uh, and because demonstrations are, you know, really get students going and then demonstrations that involve me doing just random things of uh, throwing myself around really get people interested. Totally off topic here, but well, not entirely, I suppose. So I was you know, trying to explain to my students what an orbit is, just very basic. What is an orbit? And I think one of the best explanations that's out there is Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy, where he's talking about flying. So it's not a great explanation about flying, but it's a beautiful explanation about an orbit. And that's where you fall to the ground, but miss. And so an orbit is where something's been launched in such a way that it's always falling towards, say, Earth in this instance, but it's right. always missing. <laughs> and that's just because it's moving so fast that as it falls to Earth, Earth curves away at the same rate that it falls. That would be a perfectly circular orbit. If it's an elliptical orbit, there are periods in which it's falling when it's actually making progress. It's getting closer to the ground. But then it speeds up as it does it and it gets flung out farther. And now it's oh, not falling as, as, as fast to Earth as what the Earth curves away. That and makes total so that's sense. An elliptical. See, so anyway, I was trying to me. demonstrate this. <laughs> so, 
well, what, what you're doing here is a form of teaching, but that it's a, it's a very different form of pedagogy. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're more like the firefighters that put out the dumpster fire, but kind of teaching. Well, still important. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. That's very kind of you. You just don't want to wash, uh, roast marshmallows over the dumpster fire. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. But maybe hot dogs. <laughs> okay. So I love it. So anyway, um, I'm trying to, you know, explain this and I, and I put on a, a bit of a, a show and I can be very theatrical in class. And so I, I get up on the, the front desk the, um, that, that just holds all the equipment and everything. And it's about a meter high or, or so. And I, I go ahead and I demonstrate to my students an attempt to try to launch myself into orbit where I just run along this thing, which is a few meters long and I jump off it. And, uh, I, I had, I, I used to dance and things like that. And so I could tumble. And so I would just do that. And I would, and, and I would purposely put chairs along the way. So I'd slam into the chairs and send them flying and so forth. And I did this for years without any incident. Well, one year I did this. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting yeah. for the accident or injury here. Yeah, <laughs> I did this and I launched myself off and I land, I, I do my, my tumble, I send chairs flying, everything was seemed like it was fine. And then I get up and just my foot just really hurts. And I'm just like, what's going on here? I give the rest of the lecture. I don't really think about it. I walk home, I take off my my shoe and I just have this purple line that goes across my toe. It turns out I broke my oh. toe. Oh dear. <laughs> and, but, but then I had to deal with work BC because I did, I, I broke my toe at work. Oh, it was injury at work. Lecture. Yeah. So I had to give this description of what I did to work BC <laughs> <laughs> and to administrators at UBC about how oh, I broke my so toe. I, I was demonstrating gravity. Well, how did you break your toe? Well, gravity works. <laughs> <laughs> well, you failed it to orbit because you landed. I you actually landed. I failed to orbit. Yeah, I did not. I did. I failed to miss the ground. So I. Oh, that's funny. I love it. <laughs> well, you've created a picture for us. That's for sure. <laughs> About orbit in the moon. So. Oh, okay. Well, so we have a uh, we have a situation that that is constantly changing, and then we get this wobble to happen. I think the the article said eighteen years. Is that a thing? Yeah. So what's actually happening? So the plate that we were describing earlier, or the hula hoop, um, it the way that its orientation has one complete cycle in eighteen point six years. Hmm. So that's okay. what that is. Okay. Um. So, so so there are there are a couple things to to um, kind of think about with this. Um, one, the alignment between the, the Earth, Sun, and, and Moon are really important for tides. Um, so there's, there's one that many people might actually be familiar with and that are neap and spring tides. So the Moon is the primary driver of the tides on Earth. So that has the strongest effect. But the Sun also has an effect. It's about half the strength of the moon's effect on average. And when you have the sun, earth, moon aligned, whether it's a full moon or a new moon, then you have spring tides, just very strong tides, because they seem to spring forward. It has nothing to do with the season spring. Mm. When you have a quarter moon, that's when you have neat tides, and that is when the earth, moon, 
and uh, the sun uh, are are no longer aligned. You have the, the the line between the earth and the moon and the line between the earth and the sun at 90 degrees to each other. And so, okay. so they're competing against each other uh, or they're just op- they're not really competing. They're, they're working in opposite directions. Right. And so the tides just aren't as strong overall. And that's a neat tide. Okay. So, but then there are all these different variations. Like you could have a spring tide that happens when the moon also happens by chance to be closer to earth because of that elliptical orbit. And so that can make a really big tide. Okay. That makes total sense. Cause I mean, some days it's just like a normal tide and some days you're like, wow, is the tide ever high today? So one of this 18.6 year kind of business is adds an extra complication. And that is the kind of the direction of the moons uh, in kind of in the sky relative to Earth's equator ultimately matters. And that's just a, I'm using the equator here just as a, uh, a point of reference to say that, you know, as because of that wobble, kind of where you see the moon in the sky for the, you know, for the same type of uh, phase and so forth. If you try to think about everything else remaining constant, it's going to be in a, a different position because of this wobble and it's an 18.6 year cycle. That has an effect on the way um, all the water kind of churns around on Earth and the amplitudes of the tides. The way I talk about tides in um, like my astronomy classes is a, is a very simplistic view of that. And it's, in, it's instructive to just talk about that for a moment. So tides work because gravity has a, a strong distance dependence. And what that ultimately means is that there's a stronger acceleration from gravity on the side of the earth that's closest to the moon compared with the side that's farthest away. And the middle of the, and the earth is just kind of, well, just in the middle of that. And what that does is it stretches the earth. It's, a, it's a, just a small stretch, but it's a stretch nonetheless. Yeah. And it creates for a perfectly spherical earth with a nice ocean on top. It's going to create uh, two tides, one on the side closest to the moon and one on the side farthest from the moon. And they're going to be about the same size. Interesting. And, and you're always going to have two of them. Well, and the water would give more, I guess, and, right? And, than and the, than... the land, the land has a tide too, but water gives more. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So you have these two tides and if we didn't have things like continents and so forth, everyone would always have, would experience two tides per day as the earth rotates. But we have all these continents <laughs> and that creates a barrier for that very simplistic model. And so tides get very complicated as the water gets sloshed around as a result of the moon. And so there are some places on earth that only have one tide per day, one tide cycle. Those are called diurnal tides. And then you have the semi-diurnal tides, which are kind of this, the simplistic view that I just talked about where you have two tides uh, per day, uh, two high tides. And then you could have mixed tides where you have a combination of kind of that, that, daily that that single tide on top of two tides per day and 
mixed tides are things that we have like around the uh, Pacific coast, for example, that's very common. Mm -hmm. And so all this sloshing is occurring and the amplitudes that you have during that sloshing depends on the orientation of the moon. And that orientation is changing over 18.6 years. And sometimes that orientation is such that the, the peak of the sloshing is smaller than at other times. And it's very predictable in that sense. So that's what's kind of happening with the moon, what's happening with tides. This is all well understood. um, Mm -hmm. And people can plan for it overall. There can be like variations. There could be these very weird things that happen, but overall, you know, we can plan for it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I know where you're going now is that we, when we add more water into the equation and we don't know how much water is going to be in the equation, that part's hard to plan for. That's, that's, that's right on. So, so the complexity that we have is that climate's changing. The water level is rising. We, we've measured this. We know sea level is rising. And what's happening now is you have this slow rise in the sea level and you have this, these natural cycle, cycles that are getting put on top of this slow rise in the water. Now, for just a slow rise of the water, people can just plan for that. And yes, there'll be extreme events um, that happen um, that are going to be very hard to, you know, to, to plan for. Um, but for the things just like the normal high tide events that can cause what's known as nuisance flooding, minor or moderate flooding, things like the parking lots get get full of water, some streets are are full of water, but it's not causing huge damage in and of itself. Um, That's that's something that maybe some coastal cities are going to experience that like twice a year and and city planners just, they, they deal with that. As the water level is rising, you know, they might make some minor adjustments to accommodate that water level rising. So what the study is, the wobble study, okay, is really focused on a nonlinear effect. And that's just a fancy way of saying things go, things are much more sensitive than what you might expect. You do a small perturbation, a small touch of something, and it creates the whole system to, to cascade down. It's a domino effect and so forth. Um, so what this study looked at is how the number of high tide flooding events that are minor and moderate can substantially increase in many cities, specifically in the U.S. They looked at the U.S., but in Canada, mm-hmm. we, need to be, we need to think about this as well for our city planning. And the point is, in the next decade, there's going to be an inflection point. At least that's the prediction. And that's due to the moon's orbit. So they're able to predict this. And what they did is they just added sea level rise at the kind of level that we've measured it to be, uh, you know, close to 9, 10 centimeters per decade or so. And, and it does depend on where you are. Um, but now they have this, this changing of the tidal forcing due to the natural moon orientation change. And it causes then a very rapid change in the number of, number of these minor 
tidal events, sometimes four times <laughs> to 10 times, depending on where you are. And so wow. it really can mean that places go from having nuisance flooding twice a year to having nuisance flooding that can be tens of times per year. In some places, even get up to 100 times per year. Wow. And so it, it has this, it, it's not this catastrophic flooding. But imagine you're, you're, you want to go to your favorite business and you never know if the, the parking lot's going to be flooded or the right, road that you're going to take is going to be flooded. And this so, so now cool this has because... broad economic impacts just right. from on, on life. On the basics. And so this is the cool part of, of what I'm hearing is that we have this incredible, even with the water levels. I mean, the, the history has said water levels go up, water levels go down. It's happened a bunch of times. Currently, the current trend we're in is the water levels are going up. So that's what we need to pay attention to. And so, you know, the, the I mean, the earth is this living thing that's constantly changing. Where we're trending right now is that way. And then we have this incredibly normal experience that happens that creates these unpredictable things. And when you add this layer of where we're at today with ocean levels and water, um, that is measurable. That is a measurable thing. You can see how it gets incredibly easy to mis uh, to miscommunicate or easy to spin or whatever and, and turn this way or turn that way. When the reality is, is that it's an incredibly predictable moment to not know what's going to happen. <laughs> so it, it, it um, you know, we, the way the models work, they won't be able to predict, you know, necessarily on um, um, which exact day you will have the high tide flooding, but they will be able to narrow down when you might expect it to occur. And they'll give you some idea of what frequency to expect. And city planners can use that to take action um, to make, you know, some what might be um, adjustments that seem too extensive for just sea level rise, but are really necessary for thinking about the next 20 years, for example. Right. Yeah. Because if it's headed this way now, um, where's it going to be down the road? Um, that's crazy. So it's, it's the, the thing that's hard for, I think, a lot of people to, to realize with this is this forcing will change in about 10 years. Again, totally natural uh, a variation and that's what's going to cause this inflection point in this nuisance flooding and mm. and that's what so even though people might say oh well sea level rise we don't have to worry about it for quite some time because we can predict how it's going and so forth that's true but you have to account for how the system behaves together and if you don't yeah. account for that you're going to get it wrong and that's so incredibly important. It's about 10 years away when it's expected to all sort of uh, cross paths again uh, in a way. And one of the reasons why I invited this conversation with Aaron Boley was because I wanted us to get so far ahead of it uh, because it came up and be like, okay, well, what if we could talk about it from what's really happening, what we know, what we don't know, and start to share the science behind it. And then maybe 10 years from now, uh, we're prepared, or at least when 
you know, because there's always agenda behind things this way and that way. And so maybe if we could just prepare ourselves in advance with the information that a little bit more critical thinking comes along about, yeah, you're damn right. We got to be ready for this. And no, it's not apocalyptic in the end of the world, whichever way the conversation goes down the road. So I really, really appreciate this, Aaron, and the insight. I really look forward to you coming back because I'm going to start my own conspiracy theory, by the way. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it is. because it, I, you've well, always, it's, it's becoming more and more of a tradition at this point. Well, it is. I mean, you almost conspiracy theory. You have to have your own, and so mine is going to be like, okay, flat earthers. Really, I'm a flat mooner, and I'm gonna. That's where I'm. I'm gonna become a flat mooner, and then I've got ten years to figure out how I can create my own evidence about how the flat moon has messed with the tides so much so um, to get there. So, if you're good with that, I I, I look forward to hearing it. <laughs> Aaron Boley is with us. He's the Canada Research Chair, Planetary Astronomy, Associate Professor at UBC, and um, and unfortunately, um, uh, an absolute failure at getting it to orbit. Thank you for being here, buddy. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Shane. A pleasure. It's the Shift Podcast. At SoloCore, SoloCore.com. That's where you can get all of the information from the bloggy post and all the things that are there as well. He is the uh, number one coach ribbon in my heart, pinned to my jersey. Blaine Kylo, how are you? I'm well. All of the things are there. We need um, we need an update on the on the team, Blaine. How's the team doing? Uh, tonight was the last of the regular season, which are kind of meaningless games at this point. Friday, provincials begin. Two games Friday, two games Saturday as part of the preliminaries, and then we find out what kind of playoffs we go into Saturday and Sunday. They could end up playing seven games in three ga- in three days. Really, hey? Where are provincials happening? Delta, beautiful downtown Delta, which is part of Greater Surrey, which is part of the lower mainland Greater Metro Vancouver area. For everyone across Canada who doesn't know, uh, not only is he a technology whiz, he is coach extraordinaire. Um, that's for sure. Blaine Kylo, let's get started with your fantastic piece here. As we are talking about Vancouver, how about some new um, some new things in Vancouver? Yeah, let's let, let's talk about Nettie Wild. Let's start with her because sure. she's the Vancouver filmmaker. And back in 2017, so Nettie's a, a documentary filmmaker. And in 2017, she came up with this idea. Um, she used the underneath of Vancouver's Canby Bridge as a screen, and she was projecting these massive images of salmon during their summer migration to their spawning sites. It was called Uninterrupted, and it was public art at its most dramatic and um what she's done since is move to um virtual reality so she's taking all of this stuff and she's put it in vr and 20 people at a time can sit down and get connected to these VR headsets. And what's different with uninterrupted in VR is normally when you're in virtual reality, you're kind of in your own, you're on your own, in your own space. But they've actually synchronized the 20 headsets that are a part of 
uninterrupted in VR. So when you're in this virtual space, you essentially become a salmon as a part of this run. You're in there with 19 other people who are also experiencing it at the same time. It's showing at the Burnaby Art Gallery in August and in Vancouver later in August. More locations and dates are yet to be announced, but it's quite a spectacle that you can be a part of. Are you the salmon or are you just in the water seeing the salmon? Well, you're in the water seeing the salmon, but because you're in the water seeing the salmon, it's almost like you are also a salmon because it's the kind of experience and perspective that you would only get if you were a salmon. So when, and these are honest questions about virtual reality. So when you, when you have multiple people in a situation like this, are they all seeing independent feeds of what's happening? There's no influence to the movie, if you will, is there? No, no, this is not an interactive experience. So you're not manipulating the environment. You don't have any control. Really, it's just an immersive, uh, a completely immersive video in which you can sort of swivel your head 360 degrees up, down, sideways, and you're surrounded by water and salmon the entire time. It's so cool. What a neat perspective. And um, I kind of like the idea about sort of taking that artwork and turning it into that, I mean, even though it's not an interactive experience, it's still kind of interactive because it really does immerse you into all of those, you know, I guess art on a whole new level where you wouldn't have been able to see it that way before. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And and it's it's the kind of thing, you know, in 2017, it was, it was really dramatic because you would have these massive crowds of people gathering underneath the bridge at night, late at night, to experience this cinematic spectacle. But we can't do that right now. There's still, you know concerns about COVID and the pandemic. We can't group together in that same way. So this is another way that we can kind of group together while keeping our distance. That's really cool. I like the idea. Although insensitive to show up with a with a bowl of rice for, you know, for sushi. <laughs> yes, that's not the idea. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, Steam Deck and how I'm my understanding, of course, is that the sort of the online Steam is becoming its own standalone unit with access now. Am I understanding this story correctly? Uh, no, you're not, actually. I'm just going to be honest with you. This well, is, no, it's this perfect is a new, because this, this is exactly is what new, we're supposed to do. It's a new handheld game console that's being released this year. So really, the only handheld game consoles that we really have these days, you know, Nintendo still got... Um, it's, it's other handhelds, the 3DS and things like that, that people still play, but really the switch is the only handheld that's on the market right now. Valve Steam Deck is a seven inch touchscreen portable computer, and it's going to be available your entire Steam library. So Steam is Valve's, um, storefront and streaming service for PC games, games that are available on Windows computers. And what they're doing is they're taking that and they're putting it into a 7-inch touchscreen handheld computer. Um, it's being manufactured in three different configurations, 64 gigabytes for 500 bucks, 256 gigabytes for $660, 512 gigabytes of storage for $819. But these things are essentially handheld 
Windows computers. They're coming with SteamOS pre-installed, but Valve has been very clear that this is a handheld computer and you can install whatever you want on it. So you could actually install software so that you could play any of the games. If you're subscribing to EA's origin, you can play those games. If you don't want to use the steam store, you want to use the Epic game store. Instead, you can run those games on this thing. Ubisoft's Uplay, even games from your Xbox game pass library. You're going to be able to play on Valve's steam deck this is a big deal. It's not just a competitor to the Switch like some people were talking about when this thing was announced last week. This is a handheld Windows computer that enables you to do all kinds of crazy things with it. To get a pre-order in, Valve is asking you to put down a deposit. It's $5.70 Canadian, so it's not a big deal. But they're doing that as a way to try and preempt some of the scalpers and bots that tend to snap up some of these hardware pre-orders when they become available. Um, they are technically shipping in December, but when you get yours released to you will depend on when you get your pre-order in. And I got my pre-order in later on Friday, and I'm seeing a second quarter 2022 release date oh. for mine. So if you're just now getting uh, a deposit in, on a pre-order for a Valve Steam Deck, unlikely you're going to have it for Christmas time, probably more likely 2022 for you. Well, I can tell you this. That is what I meant. I clearly did not describe it well um, because my next question was, can it do spreadsheets? Because I love spreadsheets. It can absolutely do spreadsheets if that's what tickles your fancy. Well, my fancy does get tickled. And how? who wouldn't want the ability to go and have a spreadsheet in your pocket all the time. That's exciting to me. <laughs> I actually mean that because I love spreadsheets. Um, Blaine Kylo here, solocore.com. Let's say uh, you kind of mentioned as a competitor to Nintendo's, Nintendo Switch. That's also in your, in your list of news here. It is because one of the reasons you want to have your Switch in your hand these days is so you can play the high-definition remaster of The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword first released for the Wii in 2011 and now made available on the Switch. Um, this was the first of the Nintendo games that really took advantage of motion controls because it was released for the Wii. And if you remember the Wii, people who were old enough to have that system in their living rooms, you had the Wii Remote Control controller and you had the Wii Nunchuck controller. And... The way the game worked is you would actually raise the nunchuck if you wanted to raise your character's shield, and then you would use the remote control controller, and you would actually move it up and down and left and right and side to side the way you would a real sword, and that's how linked sword worked. If you wanted to use your slingshot, you used motion controls to do that. If you wanted to shoot an arrow, you actually simulated drawing a bowstring to shoot the arrow. Lots of people didn't like this when it first came out because motion controls and having to actually mimic those movements just seems like, so foreign to people. It's like being an athlete. <laughs> but it's really awesome. I really liked Skyward Sword when it came out. Um, when I when I reviewed the game in November of 2011, I said, never before have swinging a sword, firing a slingshot, and raising a shield felt so natural in a game. Now, 
not all switches have motion controls. You do have your Joy-Con controllers. And so playing the new version, you can use Joy-Con controllers if you've got a switch that uses those to be able to use those motion controls the way you did back in 2011. But the Switch Lite doesn't have Joy-Con controllers. It's a sort of one-piece handheld. So they had to do some mapping of the motion controls to a standard control set. It kind of works. It's kind of a bit clunky. I really recommend using Joy-Con controls to play this if you can, but I really think that you should play this. Breath of the Wild is an absolutely glorious Legend of Zelda game. It's an open-world experience. Skyward Sword is not like that. It's much more linear, but the puzzle, the puzzles that you're going to be solving in this game and the motion controls, swinging that sword and racing that shield as part of the combat, it's unlike anything else you've done in a Zelda game before, and I really like it. It was amazing for tennis. I loved playing tennis on the old Wii. Uh, that was cool, although the golf was not much fun. But the uh, the tennis was really kind of cool. So for those who don't know the Nintendo stuff, are they still typically very mystical and animated versus some of the other platforms that are trying to go with a more real-life first-player war thing? They, they They really are, and that's certainly true with the Legend of Zelda games. And in fact, Skyward Sword, one of the sort of... Um, illustration animation um, techniques that they were trying to do it it's got this um, wow the words are escaping me it's 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 a it's a an art style um, an impressionistic art style so it actually kind of looks at times like you're um, looking at a Chagall painting the brush strokes and the sort of soft edges and things are really quite nice, and it's quite an intentional style that is a part of Skyward Sword. This is not photorealism. This is art. Very cool. Blaine Kylo here. Uh, peanuts, buddy. Turn yourself yeah. into a peanut. Who's who's not looking? Yeah, I'm and not peanut like Mr. Peanut, um, the mascot for the peanut company, but... Charles Schultz Peanuts is who we're talking about and who isn't trying to find something else for their kids to do now that we're kind of halfway through the summer. Um, Apple has got this Today at Apple tutorials that you used to be able to do in stores and you can now do online. But they've actually, Apple's started broadcasting some of their Today at Apple tutorials on YouTube. And the first one that they've released is features television writer and producer Mark Evastaff and storyboard artist Krista Porter, who are on the staff of The Snoopy Show, which is a new Apple TV Plus show that's coming out. And what they do in this 10-minute Today at Apple tutorial is they teach you how to draw yourself as a Peanuts character. So you want to look like Charles Lee Brown, you want to look like Snoopy, you want to look like Peppermint Patty. Um, they teach you how you can draw like Charles Schultz and they also provide a PDF with a bunch of drawing references. And this is kind of like the Bible that artists use so that if you've got 10 or 20 or 30 artists all drawing the same characters, they can make sure that they're being consistent as they use drawing references. And so a part of this is also drawing references so that you can draw your Peanuts characters just the same way the staff of the Snoopy show do. 
solocore.com, S-O-L-O-C-O-R-P-S.com for Blaine Kylo. Thanks, Blainer. Good luck this weekend. Look forward to hearing the results. Yeah, it's going to be a fun time just hanging out at the park. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.